Welcome to a History of Submarines podcast. start just a quick word thank you for listening to this here pod i really appreciate it it's a long slog it's a fun slog to be sure but a long slog but i love doing this and if you want to help me keeping it going please do rate it and better still tell your friends about it i'd be really grateful if you did so please rate us and recommend us thank you and uh also it feels kind of off recording this episode about war yet again war with all that's going on in Ukraine. There doesn't seem to be much you and I can do about it. There's obviously a deranged person with his finger on a nuclear button raping a country. Uh, it's clearly those nukes are stopping us from intervening. Nothing more I can say, except that I hope the bloodshed at least will stop soon. Having said that, let's move on to episode 5.4, The Sun Rises. We've hit December 1941, and you know what that means. We're leaving the Atlantic, turning the globe halfway so that we can cast our gaze at the Pacific Ocean, where the temperature has been rising for some time, and the day of infamy is coming up on the horizon. Yes, Japan is about to hurl itself into the abyss. And yes, in 1941, Japan has submarines, 63 of them, of various types and classes, and many of them with the blue water long-range variant. You'll remember from episode 4 on the interwar years that like many other navies, Japan's naval strategy was at its core mayhemistic, aiming to lure the enemy into a decisive naval battle that would determine control over the seas. Astonishingly, many Japanese submarines were fitted with an aircraft storage on deck. The seaplanes would mostly be used for reconnaissance, but certainly later in the war also for long-range strikes. Japanese Naval Command also did not hesitate to experiment. When the war started, it had many midget submarines. Only Italy came close to Japan's numbers. Japanese submarines were well-designed, could go deep. They had high speeds and advanced diesel-electric engines, allowing the subs to break world speed records, submerged at that. And they carried what was probably the best torpedo of the early war, the Type 95. Japan had mastered the technology to have torpedo engines run on pure oxygen instead of compressed air or nitrogen peroxide, allowing more range and with reduced wake. They had the largest and most devastating warheads, which compensated for the lack of magnetic detonators, which other countries were using to blow up ships with just one torpedo. Now, I won't repeat all of what was said in episode four here. Best to just pause this and listen to that episode first. So, you know, go on. Yeah, go ahead, just pause this and listen to episode four. Oh, go on, you know what you want to. Ha, who am I kidding, right? So, suffice it to say that every nation with a serious naval staff designs war plans for every eventuality. And in case of war with a big navy like that of the United States or the British Royal Navy, the Japanese plan was to throw them a punch to get them mad and take out some ships in the first strike. Then they'd lure the service fleet to the Japanese fleet and meanwhile have submarines lying wait to pick off as many surface ships as they could so as to reduce the enemy's numbers before the big battle went down. And so Japanese submarines were to be used as an auxiliary to the service fleet against enemy warships, not the enemy's merchants. So before we move to the United States, 
and their view on things, let's stay with Japan for a minute and look at their starting position like we did with Germany over at the other end of the world. In short, and I'll be simple and honest here, Japan's starting position was not great. Japan is a set of islands and lacks many crucial resources like oil, rubber, iron, copper, and rare materials. Thanks to its brutal expansionist wars of annexation in China, it found itself increasingly isolated. It was at the receiving end of economic boycotts by the British, French, and notably the Americans, depriving Japan of exactly those resources mentioned, and which it desperately needed to keep the Second Sino-Japanese War going and defeat China. As anyone who has ever read a high school history book knows, or should know, this is what compelled Japan to act and declare war against the Western Allies and just take the resources it needed. Well, okay, that and a fair bit of nationalism and feelings of superiority. But despite the brouhaha, Japanese naval high command wasn't crazy. Admiral and Grand Strategist Isoroku Yamamoto knew very well that any war with the United States should not last longer than strictly necessary. Japan may have been the most advanced industrialized Asian economy of the time. Its industrial production capacity was nowhere near that of the U.S., and certainly not its potential. Many Japanese officers had studied in the United States. The countries had been allies during World War I, after all. The officers had seen with their own eyes what could happen if the U.S. swung its huge assembly production base into gear. Unless Japan could somehow take out the USA completely, in the end, Americans would simply churn out too many ships, aircraft, and armed men to fight against. Japanese ships, submarines, aircraft, and tanks were still manufactured mainly the old way, by hand. The U.S. assembly industry was the envy of the world. Hitler obsessed over it, while Winston Churchill was sure American workers would save Britain during the war. Japan could never hope to imitate the might of American production. So, in short, the plan that was put into action was to perform a surprise attack on the U.S. fleet anchored at Pearl Harbor. Ironically, Yamamoto and his staff had studied the British attack on the Italian Navy base at Taranto in 1940, which we spoke in episode 5.2, I think. Could they repeat that attack on a grander scale, focusing especially on their aircraft carriers and battleships? If they could deal a big blow and sink a big chunk of the U.S. Pacific fleet, then maybe Japan could set up a kind of Pacific fortress, a defensive perimeter running from Japan via occupied islands to its northeast and all the way south to the Carolinas and Solomon's Islands, and then west to Guadalcanal, Indonesia, covering more than half of the Pacific. Hopefully, they could bring the land wars against China, Britain, and the Dutch in their Indonesian colony to a quick end and strike a peace deal before the U.S. could mobilize their undoubtedly massive numbers of newly built ships. Such was the view in Tokyo. In the United States, admirals and generals were likewise being paid to draw up possible war scenarios. One of those was War Plan Orange, one of many color-coded war plans, with orange being the color for Japan. War Plan Orange found its origins as far back as Theodore Roosevelt after annexing Hawaii and the Philippines following the defeat of Spain. U.S. war planners now found their territories close to a powerful emerging empire, Japan. Its burgeoning strength was confirmed when in short succession it defeated China in the First Sino-Japanese War, occupied and annexed Taiwan and Korea, with Taiwan, of course, being extremely close to the Philippines, and then, to the surprise of many, defeating Tsarist Russia in the Russo-Japanese War of 1905-1906, devastating the Russian Navy. Through the years, War Plan Orange changed many times as it was adapted to different circumstances as the political scene changed. For instance, as Britain and Japan were allied for a long time, there was also a war plan Red-Orange, Red meaning Great Britain, 
in case a war with Japan erupted and Britain came to Japan's aid and the US would have to fight Japan in the Pacific and Britain in the Atlantic. The many iterations of War Plan Orange assume several scenarios, including, incredibly, a surprise attack by Japan on Pearl Harbor. But either way, the American war planners knew quite well what their Japanese counterparts had in store for them should war break out. Like Japan, American naval doctrine also called for a mayhemistic decisive battle using aircraft carriers and battleship. And like the Japanese doctrine, used submarines would act in concert with the service fleet and mainly target Japanese warships in the inevitable engagement. As told in episode 4, War Plan Orange, like the Japanese war plans, called for action over long distances, and so submarines would have to not only keep up with the fast warships, but also needed to have long range. As a result, these long-range American subs were called fleet submarines. They were big as they needed to carry large fuel stores. To give you an idea, the fleet submarines of the Tambor class, first launched in 1939, had a service displacement of more than 1,450 tons, a beam of 27 feet or 8.5 meters, and were 307 or more than 93 meters in length. Germany's largest U-boat at the time, the long-range Type 9B, had a displacement of a little over 1,000 tons, a beam of 22 feet or a little over 6.5 meters, and a length of 251 feet or 76.5 meters while carrying about the same number of men. This made U.S. submarines more comfortable than their German counterparts. Modern U.S. fleet submarines of the day had refrigerators, comparatively more space and even air conditioning. The latter, by the way, was first and foremost a way to prevent electrical shorts because of condensation, which the system's cooling prevented. The luxury aspect was secondary, but of course well appreciated by the men aboard. German U-boat crews would no doubt have killed for air conditioning aboard their hot, sweaty, and quite stinky boats. So, was the U.S. fleet all that Japan would have to go up against? No. The French colony of Indochina had been handed over to Japan as part of Vichy France's vassalization deal with Nazi Germany. So, the French ran off the equation. Then there were the British, with their aging fleet at the main Asian naval base in Singapore and a smaller fleet in India, then still a British colony. In the Dutch East Indies colony, present-day Indonesia, the Dutch also had a small fleet, including a few submarines. Dutch ships were seen as on par with their U.S., German, and Japanese counterparts. Then there was the small Australian Navy. So, this is the scene. Of course, we know what happened next. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese fleet surprised the U.S. Pacific fleet lying at anchor at Pearl Harbor. The next day, Japanese amphibious fleets invaded the islands of Guam and Wake, the Philippines, and the Dutch East Indies, while troops were landed on shore in Malaya, north of Singapore. Thailand and Burma, present-day Myanmar, were also invaded. The world was stunned. Within just two days, Japan had completely upset the balance of power in the Pacific. War Plan Orange had predicted a wide-range offensive, but this action, this fast and so successful, was beyond anyone's wildest nightmare. And what about submarines? Because, hey, this is a podcast about the history of submarines. Yes, Japan employed those of Pearl Harbor. Five submarines carried with them one midget submarine each, each of those fitted with two torpedoes. The midget subs, each carrying a crew of two, tried to sneak into the naval base at Pearl, and the first shots of the war between American and Japanese units were actually not fired by Japanese aircraft bombing dock U.S. ships at 7.55 a.m. in the morning, but an hour earlier, when a U.S. destroyer noticed one of the midget subs' periscopes. Shortly after, another midget submarine was discovered and successfully sunk. While this was going on, the five submarines who had delivered the midgets took up positions near Pearl Harbor in hopes of sinking any ships trying to flee the scene. 
In all, the submarine side of things was a failure. The midget submarines rather sunk or went missing, with one crew member managing to escape. He swam to the shore and became the first Japanese prisoner of war. It is believed only one midget sub was able to fire off her torpedoes at a destroyer. Remarkably, the four submarines docked at Pearl Harbor survived the attack unscathed. The crew member operating a machine gun downed an attacking Japanese aircraft, scoring the first submarine hit against the enemy. Meanwhile, other U.S. submarines were out and about, on patrol or returning from one. The first few days were chaos. Several U.S. subs were attacked by friendly fire, with destroyers and aircraft believing they were Japanese submarines. In those first days, everyone was shaken and trigger-happy, and everything was Japanese. Other subs would surface, only to find Japanese destroyers close by, and so they dived to evade. The U.S. subs barely got shots off at enemy ships. One submarine captain fired four torpedoes at a Japanese cruiser, but he didn't wait around to see if any of his torpedoes hit. One thing was made crystal clear, though, on December 7. The U.S. declared unrestricted submarine warfare against all enemy ships at sea. Until that time, the U.S. had adhered to the Second Naval Treaty of London, of which one article stipulated that the subscribing nations would keep to the prize laws of yore. That meant no attacks at unarmed ships. Merchants carrying war material or contraband should either be towed to a friendly port or sunk only if the crew had been given safe passage. This was now immediately abandoned just six hours after Pearl Harbor. When the dust of those messy first days settled, it turned out that the Japanese had been somewhat unlucky. One of their main goals was to take out aircraft carriers, but there were none. They had been out of port. Yet the U.S. specifically had been delivered a tough blow. That meant changes to war plan Orange. A lot of the fighting would now have to be done by the submarine force. And that, as U.S. Vice Admiral Charles Lockwood would write in his book after the war, was a problem. As said, the original plan was for the fleet submarines to act in unison with the service fleet to attack the opposing service fleet in a mechanistic naval battle. Now, for the time being at least, the submarine force would be doing what the Germans were basically doing in the Atlantic. One long existing scenario was that the U.S. Navy would encircle and then isolate the Japanese home islands and bleed them white, much like the Germans wanted to do with Great Britain. Only, this would be done after the Japanese fleets had been taken on and destroyed. Now, the U.S. submarine fleet would be the ones doing the choking. The massive strategic Japanese offensive had immediately changed the balance of power, but it also meant that now, Japanese troops were stationed on islands all over the Pacific theater. They were in the Philippines, basically a big collection of islands. They were in Taiwan, another island. They were on Saipan, on Guam, Wake, on the Solomon Islands, in the Carolinas, in the Dutch East Indies, on Guadalcanal. That meant having to supply them by sea, using transports and merchants. That meant targets. A lot of targets. But as Lockwood soon discovered, so he writes in his book, St. Kamal, which I advise you all to read, many U.S. submarine captains were trained for the task. Submarine captains had been trained to be risk-averse, ensuring the safety of the boat and crew when operating in tandem with service forces. Many of them just weren't the go-getters the U.S. Navy needed at the time. And as Lockwood will also soon discover to his horror, it turned out that American torpedoes were planed by many of the same technical defects that caused Carl Dönitz and his U-boat commanders so many headaches in the Battle of the Atlantic. In two weeks, we'll be looking at some Japanese submarine successes and some wild experiments they undertook. Of course, we'll follow Lockwood and his men in their first baby steps, finding the Emperor of the Sun, while also jumping back a bit to the Atlantic to see how Dönitz and his men are doing. 
That's all in two weeks' time. Until then.